This week's entry for Summer Spiritual Cinema made me think of a roast that's been cooked too long. It doesn't matter how good the raw ingredients are, that eventually it dries out and uh, it loses flavor. That's what Sex in the City was like for me. What often worked at 25 minutes on television didn't work for two hours and 15 minutes in the movies. Now, I was never a, a huge fan of the TV series, but it could be very, very funny at times. So in this context, it was just simply, it was simply too long. The puns didn't work, and they just tried to flesh it out too much, and it couldn't sustain its own weight. Now, if you're familiar with the show, if you're familiar with the basics, I'll just run through it real quickly for you. There's Carrie, who's the author, the narrator, the chronicler of her life and the lives of her three friends. That include Miranda, who's the hardworking lawyer, family woman as well, but is frankly really stressed out about trying to have it all and trying to piece it all together. There is Charlotte, the happily married optimist and mom, and there is Samantha who, let's just say she's rather sexually expressive. <laughs> Adding to the mix for the movie, there was Jennifer Hudson, the actress who just won the Oscar a couple years ago, who plays Carrie's assistant, and then there is the ubiquitous Mr. Big around whom the plot really hinges. Will they or won't they, Carrie and Mr. Big, get married? I won't give it away. I'll allow you to see it if you want to see it. And frankly, well, all the male characters, Mr. Big being no exception, is either completely objectified or completely one-dimensional. Now, I think in some ways this is just fair play turnaround. Men's movies have done this to women for almost 100 years now. And so even if it isn't progress, it still is perhaps somewhat fair. Now, the Sex in the City characters, as some of you know, they are very affluent New Yorkers. They never have to worry about where the next paycheck is coming from. They can always eat at the right restaurants. They always drink the best drinks. In fact, there is a funny joke towards the end about why they stopped drinking Cosmopolitans so many years ago. It's a little bit of what they call sort of meta-analysis because the whole Cosmopolitan craze was driven a decade ago by Sex in the City in the first place. They are trend centers. They exist sort of at the top of the social heap in some ways. So it's not a universal experience by any means. It's not universal. But these four female characters are very much in some ways archetypes. They are emblematic. They express different four qualities of sort of um, female energy, if you will. Samantha is the libertine. She is the one who has experience for the sake of experience. She's trying to add as many experiences to her lives as she can get. There is Charlotte who is very much the good and doting mother. There is Miranda, the cynic, whose heart and her head are always, always in battle. And there is Carrie, the romantic, who as the movie opens and she tells the story, her story and the story of many other women, she says, young women who in their 20s moved to New York City, she is looking for love and she is on the cusp, seemingly, of finally finding it and that's what the movie is all about. Now as archetypes, as emblematic characters, each of them face their own heroine's journey and their trial. And ultimately, this is very much a fairy tale. They come out exactly where you would anticipate they would come out. Because I gotta say, Sex in the City, its heart is in the right place, but its pulse is really weak. Its heart is in the right place, but its pulse is weak. It manages to say at the end of the fairy tale that all the important things in life, so many of the important things, forgiveness and friendship and family, that these things matter. Just in the movie, at least, it does it fairly superficially. It doesn't measure the true weight of despair that these characters, if it was in real life, would really be going through. It doesn't measure how difficult life actually gets for them. It doesn't really show us that. And so at the end, when the happiness comes and the end of the fairy tale arrives and we can start to think, oh, well, happily ever after, that happily ever after, because they don't show the weight of the despair, 
seems very light and just kind of floats away. We're left with the glitz and not the substance. Now, I heard this week, maybe some of you heard it as well, from the author of the most famous fairy tale of our time. And what she knows as a great writer is that, in fact, all the best fairy tales, all the best fairy tales have that dose of true reality within them. This is J.K. Rowling, the author of Harry Potter, of course, giving the commencement address at Harvard University. And she's reflecting on her own life lessons. She says, I think it is fair to say that by any conventional measure, a mere seven years after my own graduation day from college, I had failed on an epic scale. An exceptionally short-lived marriage had imploded, and I was jobless, a lone parent, and as poor as it is possible to be poor in modern Britain without actually being homeless. Now, I'm not going to stand here and tell you that failure is fun. That period of my life was a dark one. I had no idea how far the tunnel extended or for how long, and any light at the tunnel, it looked like it was more hope than it was reality. So why am I here talking to you about the benefits of failure? Simply because failure meant a stripping away of the inessential. I stopped pretending to myself that I was something, anything other than I was. I stopped pretending that I was anything other than I was and began to direct all my energy into finishing the only professional work that mattered for me. I was set free because my greatest fear had already been realized and I was still alive yet. And I still had a daughter whom I adored and I hold, had an old typewriter and one big idea. And so rock bottom became the solid foundation upon which I rebuilt my life. Eleanor Roosevelt said the same truth this way. You gain strength, courage, and confidence by every experience in which you really stop to look fear in the face. You are able to say to yourself, I have lived through this horror. I can take any next thing that comes along. And then she concludes in this phrase that I love. You must do the thing you think you cannot do. It is one of the most ancient truths that unites spiritual traditions, both very, very old and as modern as within the last hundred years. That bottoming out can at last and at least put you on solid spiritual ground. At least there's some ground underneath you finally. I know this in my own life. There is this process that she talks about, about stripping away the inessential stuff that may reveal within you the genuine article that has been waiting to come out for very long, but you couldn't pay attention because you were distracted. Thoreau, our own prophet, our own sage, put it this way, I went to the woods to live deliberately, to front, to face only the essential things in life. Now Thoreau was an amazing thinker, lived an amazing life, but he also was sort of a curmudgeon as well too. He wrote, beware of any venture that requires the buying of new clothes. <laughs> and Sex in the City loves new clothes. But I got to tell you, that's not its problem. That's not my problem with the movie at all. The issue is that it never gets close enough to the life that it wants to touch. And so we get a view of its life from the outside in, not the inside out, not what the characters really go through. Like New York City. I mean, other than maybe, I don't know, Rome. There is no more cinematic city in the entire world. And yet, I got to tell you, this movie could have been shot on a back lot in Hollywood. And big pieces of it probably were. They missed the opportunity to really get the character and the sense of location and place. And so much of that is really what matters in life as in movies. 
we get fashion, but we don't get true style. We get the image, not the essence. And it actually, to borrow from one of the running jokes about the cappuccino cream on someone's top lip that runs throughout the movie, it's kind of like the movie is that froth on the top lip, but we don't get to drink deeply from the richness underneath. We get what I like to call label porn. <laughs> we get Dolce and Galbana, and we get a lot of Manolo Blahniks. And I use that word porn intentionally, not because I'm talking about obscenity. I don't think there's anything obscene. Well, maybe if you kill a lot of things to get it, but I don't think there's anything obscene about fashion necessarily. I'm talking about pornography in the sense that it is an external manipulation of bodies for the sake of showing pleasure, but not really the internal experience of that pleasure itself. That's the difference. We don't get to see that internal pleasure in the movie. And in fact, I got to tell you, Excessive fashion doesn't bother me at all. And I can especially tell you this with Teresa, my wife out of town. I've got a confession for you. I am an absolute sucker for those reality TV shows that feature fashion right at the heart of who they are. Like this weekend, you know, wife's out of town, got a chance to be a bachelor again, watching the baseball game on Friday night, watching my beloved Yankees. Every commercial, what do I turn to? What not to wear on TLC. I love that show, and I loved Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, and I love The Biggest Loser. I love all those shows that are really about people who have the opportunity, and yes, I know it's reality TV, and there's nothing really ultimately real in that stuff, but at the same time, some of the lives that we see on those shows do have the experience of aligning what is on the inside with what is on the outside coming into a place of greater congruence and coherence with the lives that they truly want to live and sometimes from the experience of a lot of pain in their past. They are yearning for transformation. It's not about the style in those shows. It's about the transformation. It's about allowing the world to see who you really are. You see, I used to live in South Florida and South Florida is one of the most uh, fashion idolizing places in the entire world. And I pretended at the time that I lived for the, there for those seven years that I didn't care. Here's the confession part. I was intimidated. I was intimidated by everyone who seemed hipper and fancier and had more fashion than me. Before we were married, my wife lived in one of the epicenters of the fashion world, South Beach. She lived in South Beach. She's back there actually this weekend for a conference. And she dragged me, if you've ever been to South Beach on Lincoln Road, that's where all the really fashionable people go to shop. Now, my wife dragged me, I mean, literally almost kicking and screaming into the Express for Men after she spent one night with me in my closet. And she said, you know what? They make pants without pleats these days. <laughs> and I said, I remember I was all stiff and tense when we went to the Express for Men. I thought, I'm too straight. I'm too neurotic. I'm too Northeastern. I'm not cool enough. I'm not hip enough. It was kind of like that line from Stephen, Car Stephen King's Carrie. They're all going to laugh at you. They're all going to laugh at you. You don't belong here. Like I said, I pretended to be above it. In reality, kind of like a former Orthodox Jew who grew up in a strict kosher household and rejects it all, but every time they eat a pork chop, they tell all their friends about it. Because sometimes it's those things that we hold on to, that we say we reject, that actually have the biggest hold upon us. See, what I was showing in my life is that arrogant aversion as much, as much as anxious clinginess, arrogant aversion is really just still all about attachment. And now, well, when I wear one shoe at least a day, it's square-toed and I wear a little product in my hair and <laughs> flat front pants and, you know, I'm allowed to come out as a metrosexual. That's all right. 
there is there is a really, really funny and also loving and also very mentoring website by my colleague, Reverend Victoria Weinstein, called Beauty Tips for Ministers. And like I said, it is loving and mentoring for clergy, especially for those clergy who sometimes forget that frumpiness is not a sign of spiritual maturity. <laughs> She's got a logo that says, I forget the exact words, but it's something like, do away with the frump. She was actually featured on Nightline about a year ago. I mean, this is really, she carved out her own little niche, beautytipsforministers.com. Check it out. She's a wonderful writer. And she's inviting in a column about six months ago, she's inviting some new readers that she might have gotten from the publicity. And I want to read you what she wrote. She said, in these postings, you will find heated arguments about shoes, ministers. No flip-flops ever. Rapturous recounting of the virtues of the simple white blouse, stern admonitions to the gentleman to use thy Norelco nose hair trimmer, explanations of exfoliation, discussions on what to wear for a day that includes a funeral, a legislative session, a home visit, and a pizza party with the youth group, and general encouragement to all clergy to shine like the illuminating presence they were called to be, however charismatic or gentle, however prayerful or prophetic, Old, young, gay, straight, feminine, or masculine, fat, thin, tall, short, bald, lushly maned, they may happen to be. See, no matter how gloriously spiritual any of us, and I think this extends not just to the clergy, any of us may be, we meet people not through the radiance of our souls first, but through the simple human encounter in our bodily selves. And frankly, if we think that religious community is the greatest place to be in order to get the deepest, most transformational experience of life, then we should project that through the part of us that actually gets out of bed in the morning. I think what my colleague here is saying is what the very obtuse philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein said in one of his little epigrams. He said, if you want to get the best picture of the soul, you first got to look at the body. What my colleague is saying is that true style is not about getting the right wardrobe. It is not about looking to the fashion magazines and saying, I have to have that. That is mine, and when I get that, I will somehow be complete. True fashion, the true depth of style in our lives, is about learning to inhabit our bodies with grace and dignity and in grounding. It is about living an integrated life that shows for with, forth with our external self. It's not about obsessing about or shunning the external image. It's about learning to live from the inside out and sharing that with the world. And it is on that account that Sex in the City does fail because it's focused too much on the window dressing. In fact, the story, which is very much a comedy, and it's really goofy, and at times actually it's oddly like a Ferrelli Brothers comedy in sort of its gross-out quotient. I think they were going for some cheap laughs. But it brought to mind not a comedy at all for me, but a very different Carrie. A character named Carrie from over a hundred years ago, from Theodore Dreiser's great turn of the previous century novel called Sister Carrie. See, this young Carrie goes to New York City around the year 1900 for all of the things that our current day Carrie Bradshaw says the young women still go and young people still go to New York City for, to find love. And in fact, Carrie and Sister Carrie a hundred years ago, she seemingly got everything that she wanted. And yet there was this deep and abiding sadness because the things that she were after, the things that she was after, those things did not satisfy her soul. 
And in the very sad concluding passage that I remember just sitting there as an 18-year-old freshman reading in college and tears streaming down my face, we hear the end of Carrie's sad tale. And now Carrie had attained that which in the beginning seemed to be life's object. She could look about her gowns and her carriage, her furniture and her bank account, for all these things she had once craved. Applause there was, for she was an actress, and publicity, once far off essential things, but now grown trivial and indifferent. Beauty also, much beauty there was. In her rocking chair she sat, though, lonely, when not otherwise engaged, sighing and singing and dreaming. In her walks along the Broadway, she no longer thought of the elegance of the creatures who passed her. Had they more of that peace and beauty which glimmered afar off, then they were to be envied. O oh, Carrie, Carrie, O oh, blind strivings of our human hearts, onward and onward our hearts say, and where beauty leads, there our hearts will bid follow. It is when the feet weary and the hope seems vain that the heartaches and the longings arise. Know then that neither for you, Carrie, is surfeit nor content. In your rocking chair, by your window dreaming, shall you long alone. In your rocking chair by your window, shall you dream such happiness as you may never feel. It is as tragic as sex in the city is ultimately a fairy tale. Now, Dreiser was a moralist and a pretty severe one. So I don't think those, finally, for any of us, are the only two choices. Something that's superficial or something that is so irredeemably sad and consigned to the hell of loneliness. There's a third choice beyond the carry of a hundred years ago and the carry of our time, is having the insights and the fortitude. The insight and the fortitude when each of us has that moment, and perhaps yours have come already and they will come again, or they haven't yet. Those moments when we feel to the very depths of our bones that question, is this all there is? Is that all there is? These can be, in fact, the most profound and moving moments in each of our lives if we listen to them, if we don't run away, if we recognize that that is an invitation to move beyond the appearance of living a life into actually living a life and inhabiting it. I love the Dalai Lama's phrase about moments like this. He uses such great clinical scientific language, especially for me. I'm so heart-centered. If you're not, he tells you, investigate. The Dalai Lama says, investigate what is causing your suffering at this time in your life. It takes courage, as Eleanor Roosevelt would say, to listen and to recognize that you can too live through this, to look upon what many in the West call our God-shaped holes, those places inside all of our hearts that yearn for a truer and deeper meaning that things can ever give us. If we listen to it, we will hear and see the seeds planted of our own transformation, and we will get not just a better style, but a deeper life, a more satisfying happiness. It is not about waiting to get everything we want and then thinking that we will find happiness at some point down the line. It starts here from within the raw materials of our own life. It is about working with who we are, working with who we are so that we can be who we really are, working with what we have so that we can be who we really are. One of my favorite baseball players of all time, and excuse me, at the end of a movie that's very much about women, we're ending with a baseball analogy, 
a guy's kind of thing. But Dan Quisenberry was not any kind of regular baseball player. He was a poet and very much kind of a gentleman scholar. And he died very, very young of a brain tuber. And he left some beautiful writings for his children for after he was gone. Now, Dan Quisenberry, if you remember, or you are a baseball fan, threw with the oddest, most incorrect technical kind of motion you could imagine. And yet he was incredibly successful at what he did. You see, very often when pitchers on the mound can't fight the right arm slot, the ball's not being let go at the right place, the right time, what they do is they say, I'm going to go into the bullpen, I'm going to practice until I find the flaw in my delivery. I'm going to try and find the flaw in my delivery. Dan Quisenberry, proving his genius, said, I found a delivery in my flaw. I found a delivery in my flaw. See, if we start from the place and the perspective that life is wonderful but still very much imperfect, we will not hold out that illusion of happiness someday, someplace else. And we will, all of us together, find the deliveries in our flaws. Find that sense of our original and innate goodness that does not have to wait for the right style that we already have the correct substance. And it's not about looking or waiting for some illusory perfection. It's about accepting who we are, the deficiencies, and the goodness. We know that we do not ultimately fashion a life from labels, but from the whole cloth of our existence that we are blessed to share very much blessed to share with each other. Amen. May you live in blessing.